Welcome to Impact Unicorns, the podcast where you meet inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies. And now, here is your host, Dr. Internil Ghosh. Award-winning author, investor, and advisor to global leaders. Welcome to Impact Unicorns. And today I'm delighted to welcome Maria Filmanovich to the show. Maria has been an impact and ESG investor for almost a decade and has a great track record at top institutions like Goldman Sachs Asset Management and has been involved in all forms of ESG investing in real assets, private equity, infrastructure, um, as well as carbon removal. Recently, she started her new company, Abatable, which is a Y Combinator-backed company focusing on carbon offsetting procurement. So Maria, it's a great uh, pleasure and delight to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Indranil, um, for welcoming me on the show. Maria, you've had a, a great career in this uh, blooming space of impact investing. Um, and now you've started your latest platform, which is Abatable. Tell us a little bit about your own journey, uh, switching from investor at a top institution like Goldman and going into the uh, uncertain and uh, perhaps nerve-wracking world of entrepreneurship. What's that been like? Well, it certainly has been, I think, something I've always considered to do, to be an entrepreneur in my life. Um, maybe this started as I looked at my father, who was an entrepreneur, I really thought, um, you know, having that autonomy of um, trying to bring an idea to life, um, found, I found that really passionate and sort of inspiring as a journey. Um, I The journey into impact investing really started when I was in university. I wanted to actually be a policy person <laughs> and soon realized that uh, the public administration wasn't for me. Um, sort of incentive alignment wasn't really there and bureaucracy really scared me. Um, and what I thought was interesting is, was the, the community around impact investing. What a lot of people back then were starting to think about is that you could combine a lot of the environmental and social elements of the society and you know, how to measure um, those kind of outcomes in the context of finance. And I thought that was really, really interesting uh, this was back in 2012, 13, when I was studying at Oxford, and Oxford was really leaning into a lot of these concepts back then, um, This even before ESG became mainstream. Um, so that was really something I had on the back of my mind. Impact Invest is a good, interesting you know, policy alternative for my career. Um, how I ended up in Goldman Sachs is actually you know, a slightly different story in the sense that I wanted to join some impact investing funds, but a lot of them were telling me, you know, you're too junior, no, no roles out of university. Why don't you start your career in finance? And then let's, let's chat in three years or so. So that's <laughs> what I've done. I take their advice, um, join Goldman Sachs uh, in London. And um, with the idea that I would leave and, you know, start uh, something in the impact investing community or join a fund. And, um, I think what happened is Goldman acquired an impact investing business at a time that I was about to leave. And I really raised my hand and I was lucky enough to, to join a very entrepreneurial setting. Um, I moved to San Francisco. Um, you know, it was really 
breathing in Silicon Valley in a way because I was an investor in the tech ecosystem uh, with an impact lens. So really, really interesting experience um, and very entrepreneurial, uh, contrary to what people think, you know, joining a bank looks like because um, I, I joined a team of 10 people that were acquired that were new to the whole infrastructure and really felt like, you know, there was a benefit in putting a process in place, but you could see a lot of the creativity early days into the team that I joined. Um, and so when I set to do this journey myself, I sort of, I wasn't scared of, at all. Um, you know, I, I saw that team scaling, um, you know, I was involved in a lot of the hiring processes. Um, and so suddenly, you know, it was less scary for me and I felt like it was a good time to leave uh, end of last year and and join and a, a friend of mine to start a baitable. That's a wonderful story. And interestingly, around the time you were developing a passion for impact investing at university around 2012, I remember being at Mubadala um, as their head of strategy and trying to form this sort of nation building impact oriented uh, investment program for Abu Dhabi so that they could diversify into the new economy and the knowledge-based economy. Um, and the interesting thing was, you know, when we had uh, people from Goldman come by, um, they'd be very interested in what we were doing, but they really didn't understand what double bottom line investing, which has come uh, along to be called sustainable or impact investing these days. They didn't understand what it was. So it's actually a tribute that within a you know very large and uh, prestigious bank like Goldman that there is this um, still this ability to onboard new ideas um, and new trends and build an entrepreneurial team within an ecosystem. And I think in in the case of um, impact investing, it was the acquisition of Imprint, if I'm not mistaken. So you probably joined just after that acquisition and. Tell us a little bit more about what it was like in the early days, because there must have been a lot of, you know, lack of awareness. Um, but also, it must have been exciting because it's uh, the Wild West, a brand new field. Uh, what was it like to sort of build a business in that atmosphere? Yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah, in 2015, Goldman Sachs and Management acquired Imper Capital, and that's the team that I joined in San Francisco. It was the first Goldman employee they hired, uh, so I moved from London to to San Francisco to join. What was at a time a group of person that came from different walks of life, predominantly sort of former uh, energy investment bankers, people from the nonprofit space. So a very diverse group of people that I never thought, you know, could could coexist in the ecosystem of of Goldman Sachs. Um, but I think credit to I think a lot of the visionary senior people within Goldman that really thought that ESG was going to be the next big thing. This was even before other realized and making the investment and acquiring a platform that worked with, at the time, very large foundations in the US, family offices, around thematic investing, really. Um, a lot of what we're doing was investing in new emerging themes linked to the uh, low carbon transition or social inclusive growth agenda. Um, so I think you know a lot of the credit to the senior partnerships um, uh, in Goldman, because that was a, a leap of faith and uh, very smart investment they've done. Um, the platform then grew in a sense that th this team um, you know, grew itself, but also uh, there were a lot of hires that were made that had significant exchange with our team on knowledge sharing, on ways they could use our knowledge, our understanding of different themes into other products and services that Goldman Sachs ended up 
um, using. And so uh, now a lot of the focus within such a big bank has been in trying to uh, offer that as a holistic solution for any sort of client that approaches Goldman Sachs to not flip because they realize that everyone really needs an element of VSG, whether it's in green bond financing or whether it's you know your MA acquisition strategy and trying to build um, you know, acquire new renewable expertise, for example, for energy group. So th that has been an amazing journey to observe uh, from within and outside, I continue to really be a fan of, of the team and, and what Goldman is doing around sustainable finance. And you continue to surf the, the leading wave, if you like, of, uh, of impact investing by now starting a baseball, which is looking at um, uh, carbon markets and um, uh, offsetting, uh, sort of carbon offsetting procurement. But before we get into you know, the details of that, can you give us a, a landscape of the carbon markets overall and which particular segment your work fits into? Yeah, so carbon markets really take different shapes and forms. Um, I think the distinction that people might be aware is the first one, which is the difference between a compliance carbon market and a voluntary carbon market. Compliance carbon markets tend to be uh, markets where entities are regulated to be trading carbon allowances. Um, so, for example, people might be aware with the uh, European Union ETS. Um, the other scheme that falls within sort of regulatory carbon markets is, for example, a system of a carbon tax. There are some countries that impose a carbon tax um, as well. Within voluntary carbon markets, that's really where Abatable sits in, and that's a, a recent interesting development the market has seen. Um, a lot of corporates increasingly are pledging to get to net zero by 2030, 2040, or 2050. Um, and that's what I call the pledge economy. So they're not mandated to be doing that, but they're really uh, publishing, you know, stating to the outside world that they they commit themselves voluntary to get to net zero. Um, the voluntary market really entails corporates to, for you know, for what is the hard to abate emissions within that supply chain to be buying uh, offsets. Um, and there's a market for carbon offsets that has been around uh, since the Kyoto Protocol. Um, and continues to be enlarging, and roughly 500 million tons of CO2 equivalent um, credits have been transacted last year, which was a record high uh, since the beginning of, of this um, this market started. Uh, within the voluntary carbon markets, um, there's been a lot of interesting uh, movements. In particular, we've seen very large corporates like Microsoft. Apples and others um, really commit to net zero and being large purchases in the market. And I've run, you know, RFP processes that are pretty comprehensive in trying to to have a call for project uh, that come from really different types. And you know, we've seen a maturation and uh, of some types of project that uh, reduce or remove carbon, but also a very interesting new project within the carbon removal technology space uh, that have great potential, especially if they're supported at scale um, through the through use of carbon offsets um, and. Carbon offsets often are just, you know, the way simplistically the way I describe it is, um, it's effectively uh, a, a monetary compensation for pricing an external emission that is happening, whether it's removed or avoided, and so that can help really a lot of companies get started, especially new companies that need R and D capital and might not have a commercial 
viable uh, product just yet that need that extra capital to cover some of the initial R&D cost, high development um, cost of their supply chain. So it's a really interesting instrument um, and one that I think a lot of corporates are looking at um, as a way to support innovation in this space. This is fascinating. Let's try to put this in context. So you said that the last year, the, the number of offsets traded was 500 million tons worth of CO2. So in the context of how much CO2 we're emitting at the moment per year, oh, that's about a 1%, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, so we're emitting at a global level, roughly 40 gigatons. So, you know, multiples scale, um, you know, lower currently of where we are in this market. Um, what you need to take into account is roughly 25% of global emissions are actually uh, complied Within, sit within the compliance market. Um, so the number I was mentioning is for the voluntary carbon market. Um, so very small level. Clearly, you know, a lot of uh, research is, is estimating a scale up of the voluntary carbon market uh, of a factor of 10 to 30 times by 2050. Um, so that's a significant scale up expected. Um, and we've seen the task force for scaling voluntary carbon markets um, really create a bit of the principle and the guidance for how corporates need to think about this sort of instrument to be able to, to increase adoption and, and move uh, way more corporates to start doing this now as opposed to waiting for 2030, 2050. So, um, you know, it's a significant scale up, certainly very small compared to where we need to be. Um, and I think that's probably where the challenge is, is making sure and corralling a lot of interest is appropriately uh, going into the space now as opposed to, you know, deferring action, which might if you're enjoying Impact Unicorns, don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell to receive notifications of new shows to bring the most relevant Impact Venture stories to the podcast. If you would like to review the show, go to the Apple Podcast mobile app or iTunes to leave a rating and review. So for the amount of CO2 we're currently producing, about 25% of it is legislated in, in, in to be abated um, in some way. So that's the compliance market. And then by 2050, we could have, you know, another 10 to 30%, let's say 20% you know, round numbers um, addressed by this carbon offset market. So between these two markets, there's already quite a large amount of that CO2 being you know, accounted for. Um, and the way these markets uh, grow, uh, I'm sure the compliance market will grow as will the offset perhaps faster than we think. So it's, uh, it's actually a promising trend, although, as you say, a long way to go. Um, let's drill in a little bit now into the, the voluntary carbon market, because uh, there's sort of an interesting phenomenon here. Uh, as I understand it, not all offsets are priced the same. So, in fact, the range of pricing on these offsets uh, can range a hundredfold, as I understand it. Tell us a little bit about how that works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, not all carbon offsets are created equal. Um, and the reason is there's different types of offsets. Um, the first distinction people make is often uh, an offset that is tied to an avoided emissions versus a removed emission. And avoided emissions are, for example, projects such as um, renewable energy production, as opposed to you know, a fossil fuel um, energy intensive alternatives. So that's an avoided emission that is often quantified and estimated. Um, 
there, uh, for example, in the removal bucket, um, people think of, for example, afforestation and reforestation activities where you're creating carbon sequestration uh, through the form of a biomass creation. Um, and so clearly, you know, all different projects have different development curves. For example, avoiding an emission has its own cost relative to perhaps creating a new forest, buying the land, and that becomes more expensive. Um, the other distinction is just a perception of quality. For example, in the case of a renewable energy project, um, a lot of people think of the carbon offset role and the monetization of carbon offset as non-additional, because perhaps that renewable energy plant would have uh, been constructed anyway, because renewable energy is really cost competitive. It doesn't need any sort of help uh, from a monetization standpoint or incentive to be able to, to create that. Um, as opposed to, for example, in the case of new carbon removal technologies that are very early in the infancy of development, they need capital from, from an R&D standpoint. And so carbon offsetting could be truly additional in the context of you know, incentivizing people to, to, to be producing more of those carbon removal offsets. So um, you're right, Indranel, the, the, the discrepancy of prices is, uh, is, is huge. Um, you know, we've seen very old uh, carbon credits, renewable energy uh, trade red, very low last year, um, close to the $2, $3, $5 a ton as opposed to some of the carbon credits that perhaps Microsoft has bought um, as part of their more recent procurement, uh, where they emphasize a lot of the high quality, the high additionality piece trade often north of $600 a ton. So a very, very huge discrepancy. I would say the market has, um, you know, a lot of the volumes that I, that I mentioned, 500 million tons, um, you know, those have traded la last year close to I would say probably in the sort of between seven to fifteen dollar range. So that's where we see most of the activity currently. Um, the price has increased around COP26 significantly in this market. Um, from I would say for nature-based credits, more, more recent vintages from I would say seven dollar to now closer to fifteen. Um, and I think what we've seen is the fact that the the people holding some of these inventories really are trying to price in a lot of the demand that's coming, not only from corporates, but also from potentially governments now needing to use some of these offsets as part of their um, NDCs, nationally determined contributions. So, so certainly a lot of movement, uh, pricing will move significantly. Um, a lot of industry participants we work with uh, really expect the price increase. Um, some that comfortably say it's going to go up north of 20, some of some say potentially even $50 a ton in this market. So, you know, well, one that will continue monitoring, um, you know, certainly a lot more demand than there is supply leading to some of these pricing imbalances. Just a word on um, <clears throat> these uh, price uh, ranges. So, I mean, even if you're looking at something like forestry and, you know, there needs to be some sort of certification or assurance that a forest, once it's grown, will remain in place and continue to hold that carbon uh, in that biological form uh, for 50, 100, 200 years, um, compared with, let's say, direct air capture and then trapping the carbon dioxide in a mineral form in a rock, which is essentially considered permanent. Um, how do you see the market evolving in terms of the different segments of 
um, from the supply side, different types of projects, you know, going from the, the biolog from the carbon abatement uh, to the, the biological sort of temp, you know, medium term storage to the essentially permanent mineralized storage. You see sort of, um, you know, much dynamics in terms of uh, how these relative segments will grow and how, how they'll be priced. I think it will, it's really difficult to predict. The way I typically explain this to people is every project has its own development cost, right? If you're developing a forest and you need to maintain that forest intact, in, in theory, for, forever, because you would need to guarantee a level of permanence of the sequestration in the biomass forever, um, you're often dealing with costs that require you to purchase the land, um, you know, purchase a team that does the monitoring, the verification cost of these projects for often, you know, 30, 60 years plus. And so suddenly the cost is, is not trivial. Um, and especially if you sell some of the carbon credits for future issuances up, up front, i.e. you're getting uh, cash from the sale of the future offsets now, you need to be really, really careful in estimating the right cost along the way. Because um, the risk is that your carbon carbon cost won't allow you to cover all of all of the costs over the life of the verification period you need to you know, stick to. Um, so we've seen some missteps in this market. Um, you know, often not pricing enough on the carbon cost relative to the development cost. Um, now, different projects have their own different uh, revenue streams as well. So in the case of a forestry, for example you could potentially harvest the biomass, monetize that, and then replant. And you could do this um, whereby at an equilibrium, the forest is intact and you know, you've permanently sequestered at least the equilibrium state of the forest. So that's an example. Um, in the case of direct air capture, the monetization avenue is very difficult to predict at this point. And so a lot of what you see in, reflected in the price is truly what is the development cost of, of effectively deploying something that is not at scale. And so, um, you know, the, some of the companies we've seen, whether it's Climeworks or Storga, they're doing a lot of R&D. And so all of what they're, they're trying to monetize in the form of carbon offset is the, the cost of that development cost at scale, plus a lot of the lessons learned uh, that they will need to budget from here to when they will become at scale. Um, and it's certainly that, it's hard to, to predict because technological iterations, I think, are hard to predict even from the company perspective, let alone from a, a market participant in this space. I guess a lot of people would be worried about um, assurances in terms of whether these projects will actually be delivered. Um, so how does that work? How, how do you police these projects to say, you know, will the forest actually be planted and managed for the allotted amount of time um, will the development uh, and research that's happening in a direct air capture, will it actually succeed? And will it actually be used to uh, sequester the carbon that was promised? Um, how do you, how does the market sort of um, provide assurances and, and almost insurance, I suppose, um, that these things will happen? Yeah, I think it's really hard to provide assurance, especially um, in the case of direct air capture. Um, there's a lot of unknowns from a technological development perspective, um, especially you know if that requires injecting the CO2 in, in uh, underground because we've never done it at scale. So there's a lot of risk 
I think the genesis of the corporate buyers wanting to back such project in the form of a purchase of carbon offset understand the risk and they're happy to take it. Um, and they know that without them intervening or purchasing these carbon offsets, I think no one would, would give these, these company even a chance from a, a capital financing perspective because these companies are not financeable outside of perhaps some grants from the government, which we know are not really reliable um, from a sustainability consistency perspective. So um, I think a lot of these corporates, especially you know the pioneering one, whether it's Microsoft or Shopify and others, really leaning into uh, supporting the industry, wanting the ecosystem to develop. And um, there could be some contractual mitigations that they require. For example, we've seen uh, in the case of maybe developers that have larger portfolio of credits with different projects, perhaps they're request requesting replacement credits. For example, if there's an under delivery on one plant versus the other. Um, but uh, the replacement credit concept is something we've seen on, on more mature project types, for example, within forestry, often who develops forestry projects, you know, has different, different projects. And so in the case of undelivering one project, they'll be able to step in. Um, some of the methodology that we look at, for example, within Bera and others have also require the developers to put what I call the risk buffer. So there's sort of a, a discount in the numbers and the quantification of CO2 that you're selling into the market. Um, and that is as a way to create a, a sort of a buffer in case of um, the delivery of some credits. So there could be some contractual mitigations, but as I said, um, you know, often the, 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 the risking really happens at the quality of the developer itself in the form of you know them being able to step in with replacement credits, you know them and their ability to you know be conservative in the numbers that they show you and they deliver, um, and it, in case it's really difficult, for example, if you're backing really early stage project like direct or capture, then I think the corporate needs to understand those risks uh, and needs to budget for it. So. If a corporate, for example, um, issues a number of uh, offsets uh, to a direct air capture company or a forestry company, and it goes to the world and says it's offset um, some amount of its carbon footprint today or historically as well, as some companies are doing. And then those um, you know, developers, uh, project developers don't deliver. Does the company then have to go and rebuy those um, you know, offsets and, and make up the difference. If, for example, the contractual mitigations or other things don't work out in the initial projects. Yeah, I think what you would want is to make sure that the corporate or the intermediary advising the corporate has done their diligence. So in, in the sense that they feel like the, the clauses and the quality of developer reduce that risk in the first place. When the first place, for example, when, when there's an incident and there's an under delivery, Second thing you do is you see whether the buffer that you've budgeted for that project, which is often in the range of 10, 20% that is carved out uh, over time is sufficient to cover that under delivery. If that is not possible, then often what you do is you have a discussion with the developer and see if they can step in and provide some replacement credits from some of their other portfolio projects. Um, if that's not the case, then I think it, it will be really challenging to be able to, to claim that you've actually offset it your emissions because you would be in shortage of credits to be able to do that. Um, this actually is something that uh, we've seen is really changing in also the way corporates uh, talk about these sort of offsetting um, 
projects. And um, one thing we've, we've noticed is that often where this risk exists and you're voluntarily committing to offsetting, you're not mandated, suddenly the scrutiny is a little bit relaxed. And um, the way how corporates have been approaching this is instead of talking about offsetting, some of them are talking about um, climate contributions they're making, um, where you know the scrutiny is not on making sure your overall net zero from an accounting perspective and you can recalibrate all these numbers, but instead you can claim you've actually you know positively contributed into something, and even though there's been an under delivery, um, you know that's a risk you had budgeted, and that's typically done in the context of how you communicate about these efforts. Um, so the change from carbon offsetting to uh, climate contribution is something we've seen. Um, this is also guidance that has been provided by this uh, science-based uh, target initiative. Um, they're talking of beyond value chain um, climate contributions. And it's something that um, I think will also be more relevant um, in the context of a new article six policy where now potentially some governments would want to claim ownership of the carbon credits. Um, and so suddenly you have a contrast between what the corporate is inter interested in claiming and what the government would need to, to claim. Um, and, you know, there's been some legislation around Article 6 on sort of corresponding adjustment between government national inventories and, and what the government um, and what the corporate's projects have been financed. Um, so, yeah, interesting question <laughs> you raised, Indranil. I think uh, a lot of people will, will just learn a lot about it um, by, by, you know, by doing different projects and seeing, um, you know, what the delivery risk will be over time and, and you know, where the risk of government inter intervention could be in, in, um, in claiming those the same carbon offsets. Over the past 20 years, I've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs to build impact unicorns. In my experience, every company that has a transformative positive effect on the world does so by building strong partnerships with communities, investors and governments to solve society's biggest challenges. If you'd like to learn more about how innovative entrepreneurs can help to build a more sustainable and inclusive future, read my award-winning book, Powering Prosperity, a Citizen's Guide to Shaping the 21st Century. So it really does seem to boil down to the quality of the projects. And I guess this is where your model comes in, in terms of carbon offset procurement, because um, you're looking for the best projects um, to, to provide to um, you know, the corporates that need to offset or make a climate contribution. I know that you've been doing a lot of research in this area. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what the supply side looks like. You know, where are these um, projects coming from? And, and uh, if, if you're a corporate, uh, what can you, what, what do you, what can you tell us about the supply supply side about where to get these um, projects from? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, on, on your first first comment, um, yeah, quality is something that we've tried to uh, really do a lot of work on, especially in trying to define it. So one part of our business is really helping corporates with their net zero commitments. And what we do is we source and vet high quality projects that we think best address their unique needs. It's a really complicated space and we help clients sort through different options. Um, quality comes in the form of you know, assessing the, the quality of the project developer. As we talk about it, we think the, the quality of the project developer helps you with the risk implementation a lot. 
So that's one, one element of what we do. And the second layer, we look at the project itself. So how you know, where balance of evidence is with respect to the additionality of the project, the permanence the project is able to, to, uh, to have over time, um, and then the risk of double counting, as we, we touched on right now, um, specifically around uh, jurisdictional rights, uh, land title rights, um, and sort of Article 6 um, government action. So that's that's uh, what we do. Um, the the genesis behind Abatable is really one of a platform that we connect customers with developers and intermediaries who own and develop these carbon offsetting projects and need a buyer to secure funding to continue to scale their operations and impact. Um, and the way we're doing this is we facilitate the arrangement of offtake agreements of carbon offsets, um, so multi-year purchase agreements between the developers and intermediaries. Um, through the process, we gather a lot of pricing and carbon, carbon modeling data, which is helpful in aggregate to derive a lot of data insights and benchmarking. And specifically, this is helpful for intermediaries and trading houses that are trading some of these, these, these credits and financing some of these credits, uh, because we inform what the market risk and carbon delivery risk is um, of, of these projects. So, uh, so that's one of the monetization avenue we're currently exploring is really trying to monetize on the data insights and benchmarking that we can provide, um, uh, we can gather from the platform. So that's the first piece of what we do. In terms of um, you know, some of the observations as we've been in this market for, for some time, is really that the ecosystem from the developer perspective is pretty concentrated. There's a lot of um, market participants that have been around since the early days of this market. So around Kyoto Protocol, the clean development mechanism and a new ones that have, that have come in, um, let's say in the 2008, 2013 um, period. Um, this was pre-market crash. And so some of them unfortunately um, are no longer around, but the ones that have, have been around and have a long tenure really started to own a lot of the project and the volumes transacted in this market. So. Uh, we've published some research we've done recently on the state of the carbon carbon developer ecosystem, um, looking at how ultimately uh, roughly 40% of the volume of nature-based credits are concentrated into uh, very, very few um, developers in this market. Um, so, so that's really, you know, um, as we think about the data gathering piece of what we do, um, it's important for us to start working with some of those large developers, uh, start understanding some of those projects um, and where risk and lesson learns have been. Um, so that's really sort of our key focus for now is debatable. You mentioned, mentioned this very high concentration uh, of projects. Um, so who are some of the, the big um, project developers out there? And are they geographically concentrated or concentrated in any particular type of project? Yeah, so um, it, uh, the market is really concentrated into very few global players. Um, some of the names we've seen in the market are Wildlife Works, who have been a, a very large forest conservation developer uh, with a portfolio in Africa, uh, Latin America, predominantly. Um, and then the other ecosystem of large developers in this market has been few players in the US, um, such as Finite Carbon and Blue Source, which has really developed a lot of the projects that could qualify within the uh, compliance cap and trade in California. 
Um, so that's a, the second ecosystem. And then the, the rest of the ecosystem is really a lot of country specific developers that maybe have one or two projects under their belt. Um, and currently, because they see the market evolving really fast, they have an interest in scaling their operations beyond um, one or two countries if they're operated. And so suddenly we're seeing a lot of them uh, approach the market for financing and um, doing leading a platform expansion of their business, um, whether it's regional expansion or global expansion. And some we've seen also venture out from you know, the bread and butter of what they've done. You know, a lot of them had been doing renewable energy, carbon credits that became out of fashion. And so some of those developers we've seen now turn into um, nature-based solutions, uh, for example, projects which are now more in trend, especially as a lot of clients are requesting for removal credits as we speak. Um, but clearly, you know, one of the things we observe is that those developers don't necessarily have the capabilities of developing forests. Maybe they have a carbon expertise, but um, you know, developing a forest versus a renewable energy plant is significantly different. Uh, you're now dealing with uh, trees and survival rates of trees versus um, you know, uh, building industrial plants and, and securing solar and, uh, and wind farm equipment. So um, it's very different um, and certainly one that we continue to explore. The market is moving very fast, we've seen very strong uh, partnership uh, between developers and capital providers, specifically energy groups that are interested in, in financing some of these projects uh, and backing these, these platform expansion over time. So interesting one, we've published research on this, we'll continue to update uh, some of the mapping we've done with new data that we're gathering as we approach developers and, and get more information on, on pipeline developing how they're looking to scale, what sort of price expectations could be out of some of the projects. Well, I encourage everyone to read your research report recently on the supply side. It's very, very fascinating. And uh, will be in the show notes of, uh, of this podcast. Um, Maria, tell us a little bit about what you see ahead of uh, in the coming year at Abatable. What are some of the things you want to achieve and, and milestones you're shooting for? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, clearly we're very ambitious entrepreneurs, myself and my co-founder, so I have a a uh, really long list of, of milestones we'd want to achieve. But I'd say the main one is um, one thing we'd want to prove to the market is that there is a demand for for um, for carbon offsets that is not just on a spot pricing. So sort of you know procuring carbon credits you need now to retire. And corporates are now seeing the price increase uh, as an interesting opportunity for them to step in procuring carbon over time as part of offtake agreements, similar to what has happened in the renewable energy space early days. So that's really something we would want to pioneer as a baitable is procurement um, through offtake agreements um, over multiple years. And we're doing a carbon procurement event in April, which will be a pilot for us, uh, where we're trying to facilitate um, carbon buyers, carbon developers and intermediaries and agreeing on uh, offtake structure of, of one and three years to start with. Um, so that's really sort of a milestone for us, pioneering offtake uh, market in this. And then the last um, you know, milestone that I think it's important, um, that it's something that I personally really want to push Abatable to do more of, is trying to leverage as much data as possible um, through this, this connection of developers and buyers. And that comes in two forms. The one is from the developer's perspective, getting more information from them on where they see volumes of carbon uh, 
uh, credits to come, which I think informs a lot of supply side considerations. Um, and then from the buyer's perspective, getting a sense on the, the price they would be willing to pay for different project types. As we discussed before in Renault, um, you know, there's not a lot of transparency just yet on pricing. Different exchanges have been attempting to, um, to, to do that. But I think part of what we could do as part of our procurement events could, could be an opportunity for, for both the buyers and developers to, uh, to, to go through price discovery. Um, and so that's something we'd wanna at least document and, and see if we could, we could use as a data set to inform better decision-making over time. Well, a lot of uh, innovation ahead, I can see, and uh, I'm, I'm wish you the best in achieving these milestones. They sound as though they'll be incredibly important for the uh, industry at large, not just debatable. So thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, really look forward to checking in on you in a few months and years and see how this exciting new space is developing. But for today, thank you so much, Maria. Thank you, Juno. A pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode of Impact Unicorns, don't forget to rate and review this show by scrolling down and clicking Rate This Podcast. And join me next week as I talk to more inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies.